0: Um, I wish my mother had stepped back and asked me some very hard questions. Granted, I'll be honest, I probably wouldn't have answered them or wanted to. Um, But I wish she had approached me more critically. Um, I wish I'd had some um, guidance, some mentors, and even in the roles of counselors. I wish they had sat with me and just said, hey... It's obvious you don't want to deal with this, so you know what? We're not going to sign off on these letters. I know you probably will hate us for this, but I want you to understand why. We're not saying never, but you need to understand and confront this before you do it. No one ever did that.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Broadview. I'm Lisa Sellen Davis, and my voice sounds worse than last time because now I have COVID. But the show must go on. So in the next installment in my ongoing series of interviews with trans people with diverse viewpoints, this episode is with a therapist and trans man who goes by the pen name Stillman Cray. We're not using his real name because he fears personal and professional repercussions. But Stillman has penned a manifesto called Being Transgender is Not Normal, which I'll link to in the show notes. And he also crafted an interesting checklist for people considering transition, which I think could be really useful. So that'll be in the show notes too. Now on to the interview. Welcome to Broadview. I'm excited to have you here today. Thank you. And let's start by just hearing your story. How did you come to transition?
0: Well, this was about, well, let me be specific instead of general. This was in 1999 2000. And I came about it through denial. Um, I knew something was off when I hit 14, 15, um, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And so slowly it manifested. Um, Fortunately, I had a stay of execution concerning puberty. So I think that's partly why uh, my revelation was delayed because I hit puberty very late. I was hoping it would never come. And so I I knew I wanted to be the opposite gender. Um, I felt that. But I didn't have a word for it at that time and I told my mother in a letter um, that was the only way I could come out with it and um, from there she sought help and um, one counselor apparently mentioned I guess I wasn't there but something about gender dysphoria and so I continued to see different therapists and um, honestly I do not remember a lot from that time because I was in major denial I would go to therapy, and I wouldn't talk the entire time. I wouldn't even look at the person. I didn't want to deal with it. Um, at that At that time, there was something called Benjamin Standard of Care. And um, I met that criteria for the most part. When I was eighteen, still in high school, finishing up, I legally changed my name so I would graduate with it. And then I went on to college. I didn't go to the college I wanted because I, I wasn't even thinking about careers. I was just going through the motions. So I applied to a couple of colleges, got in, and I just went to one that was somewhat close. And um, the first year was difficult because I still looked female, even though my hair was cut short. And um, so it was uncomfortable. I was socially maladjusted. And um, I went on to have surgery when I was the day after I turned 20. And then I started hormones two months later. But um, throughout all of this, I had never confronted the issue. Uh, As I said, I was in major denial, did not want to deal with it. Um, So I was just going through the motions. And after surgery, after major surgery, this is, it can be typical. I had a bout of major depression, so it's not like I was euphoric. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't regret the surgery, but I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not content. I was still wasn't content physically. Yes, I was, you know, a little relieved, but there were so many other ramifications that I hadn't addressed. Um
1: I want to hear about the ramifications, but first I want to go back a little bit. Sure. You you said you wrote this letter to your mother. Were you, was this a new experience for you of feeling like you were in the wrong category? Or had you been like that as a younger child?
0: There were, my mother tells me about this and I do remember it. There were inklings. However, when I was young, you don't really, at least in my experience, I was not conscious of the difference. You know, some children, young, very young, they they know, even if they're gay, they know that something is off and, or they say, you know, I want to be a boy, I want to be a girl. I never verbalized that. Um, I think in some ways I was being, I was protecting myself on some level and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But um As I got older, I became more uncomfortable. And um, to give you some examples, though, when I was 12, all of a sudden I wanted all male clothing. And so my mother let me buy it. And I was always very, as a child, I was very rambunctious. I didn't want the typical stereotypical girls things. Um, But I didn't associate that with, oh, I'm supposed to be a boy. I never did. That did not come until I was in my adolescence essence and the interesting part is no one influenced that you know there I wasn't reading anything this was before YouTube and I wasn't online I didn't interact with anyone who was you know gender different so it was innate and I just had this strong desire when I was reading books um for pleasure that oh I'm supposed to be male I want that and uh, so I'll I'll leave it there.
1: And and when you said you were in denial, you didn't deal with it. Talk about what it is. What were you in denial about? Because you had admitted to yourself, it sounds like that you did not want to be female.
0: Right. But in all honesty, I didn't I didn't consider what that meant. What it meant to be male or female in terms of social roles. Physically, obviously, yes person knows what that means and I didn't want to deal with what a woman has to go through um, and um, at that time in terms of being in denial I had other underlying issues so we moved across across country at that point and it was an adventure to me I, I was happy So I moved from California to the east coast and that was great Um, But that's when my troubles began, and um, I kind of just shut down. I started closing people out, and I had severe OCD, Um, and that was a precursor to what was about to happen. The OCD was trying to stave off not dealing with the gender. No one ever told me that, but I know that because just from living, and the OCD went away completely on its own. Which was miraculous. And um, when I came to the state I am in now, the literal state on the East Coast, I um, continued going to a private school and it was great. Nothing was wrong with the environment, but I decided to leave there and go try public school because I was so uncomfortable in my skin. But I thought it was something external. You know, I thought it was the environment, but it wasn't. And I regret that. And um You
1: regret again, leaving huh?
0: Oh sorry, I, I feel like I'm rambling, so feel free to cut me off.
1: Yeah, you feel you, you regret leaving the school that you were at?
0: Yes, I, I do because I always went to a private school, even in California, and I loved it. It was fun, um, excellent education, teachers were great, and the curriculum I just I love learning and stimulating um material. And so when I came, when we moved, I finished my eighth grade year at a private school, and I wish I had stayed there. But I left because I thought that the problem was the environment and not really what was going on inside me. And um, so that, you could say, was my first regret.
1: Hmm. And I'm interested that you say that the OCD went away on its own because... You know, there's so much battling over the idea of whether gender dysphoria is a symptom of other mental health problems for some kids, for some kids. Right. Or whether it's the source of those other mental health problems. So one could look at your situation and say, oh, well, transition cured your, your OCD.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One could look at it that way. However, no, I can... It's hard to be specific, but I can tell you no that that it is definitely not that case. I still have some underlying o c d things mental idiosyncrasies, and I know I inherited that it's genetic mm. but um no transitioning didn't ameliorate the o c d
1: you'd mentioned ramifications of transition. So will you, will you talk about that? And immediately in the aftermath, you, you experienced depression. Did that get, did that get better? And what were the, what was the rest of the experience like for you and what were those ramifications, but also, you know, the, the positive parts.
0: Sure. Because there were some positive benefits. I can't deny that and before i answer that i have to be i have to be cautious with myself because i'm different in other ways and yes everyone is unique so i don't want someone hearing this thinking oh you know he thinks he's special no i don't mean that um but i am very different just personality wise being a, a writer and um i'm an anachronism so that has caused a lot of hardship in my life because i don't relate to the times and so that compounded being different or being, you know, other. And so my depression after the um, surgery, it um, manifested. It didn't go away. And the major depression was because I felt so alone. Um, I didn't have any friends. People were curious. You know, I, no one ever mistreated me, even in high school. No one was ever mean. But I, um, I didn't connect And so my evolution was very solitary up to a certain point. And so that obviously impacts how you adjust in life. And, um, when I did finally meet someone to have my relationships, my first relationship, it was monumental. And, um, well, I wrote a long, long autobiography about that and it, it impacted me, devastated me. And, um, so depression has become, so to speak, my most loyal companion. Mm.
1: Um,
0: it's my source of writing. Um, pain can be a very powerful muse.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think a lot of artists, and when I say artists, composers, writers, traditional artists in terms of painting, they can identify because they, they often do struggle with mental health issues. They feel things at such a depth, and that compounded matter. So that was – that added to the whole gender issue as well. So I don't want to say that my depression is strictly because of being transgender. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes,
0: it has a huge impact, um, but it's not the only reason.
1: But if you were going through this today, I I guess you wouldn't be alone. You'd have a huge community of support.
0: Honestly though, for me, I don't think I would engage in it. It's I am not someone who likes to get involved in large groups or be an activist, and I've always and here's an interesting point, I've always dissociate dissociated myself from being trans I don't like to identify or you know even like wave a banner so to speak I'm not proud of it but that doesn't mean I don't want you to get the connotation that oh he's self-loathing you know he hates himself no I I dislike the issue and I feel like by identifying myself as trans I'm setting that barrier for being different and I am the type of person I want common ground What I've always missed in my life is camaraderie and not based on being transgender, but on being human. And so I don't relate to a lot of people just because of who I am, my personality, not just because of the fact that I'm trans. I kind of leave that. I don't talk about it often. Most people don't know. So I feel like I'm living on the backside of a lie. That's what I always say. It's like living on the backside of a lie.
1: Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, one thing I've noticed is that that's possibly a difference between someone like you and some of the kids coming out suddenly as trans today, you know, after a lot of social influence or media influence, is that they they are identifying as trans, whereas some of the people I met who who transitioned after long bouts with gender dysphoria they don't want to have anything to do with the label of trans you know they want to actually be boys or men or girls or women which right. i think is an interesting distinction they're not they're not interested in the identity aspect of it they're simply interested in the physical or psychological relief
0: exactly i, I don't want that Vindication or affirmation from, you know, by belonging to a group. This isn't about pride or movement. That's never been the case for me. I just wanted to live my life and be comfortable in my skin and not attract attention because of that. If I, if, you know, I wanted to be recognized for other things, for my contributions or, you know, skills.
1: Well, you wrote an interesting thing that before you transitioned, you would try to conceal your breasts and and hunch your shoulders and sort of try to make yourself disappear but that you ended up attracting attention to yourself by by doing that
0: yes it was counterintuitive and, and i regret it because and i don't mind saying this I, I i was freakish my sister even one time said she said you look like a freak and She was just being honest, okay, yes, it sounded harsh at that age, but I wish someone had literally, I wish my sister had thrown me up against the wall, not too harshly, but, and said, you know, you need to look at this. Fine if you want to proceed, but just look at it. Granted, she was growing up too. She was, she is only four years, 10 months older, so she had her own life to, you know, be focusing on. But um, it was, I was not dealing with the issue. And um, I would get dressed in the dark in the morning before school. I'd wear the same clothes every day because I felt protected in them. It was not comfortable. And I remember one teacher, he wasn't even my teacher, but he looked at me one time and I I could see that he was probably concerned because I looked so miserable. And um, but no one, no one ever questioned me. You know, they kind of left me alone. I had some very nice teachers but I, I regret it, there were opportunities, but I could not um, deal with it. I just wanted to disappear.
1: So you got a new body, you took hormones, and, but you wrote that it didn't solve your gender problem and that it, it opened up more problems. Um. What are some of those problems that opened up for you?
0: Um, and again, if I'm talking too much, do let me know because I feel like I am.
1: No. Oh, my gosh. Not at all. You're doing great.
0: Okay. Um, yes. In terms of what issues that it did open up, I still remember the night after surgery. So I went to Canada and um, very nice people there. And. The day that I think it was the night of or the night after, I just cried and cried. Not because I was scared or not because of regret, but it was so much happening all at once and I couldn't process it. And I don't think I I hadn't come to terms with what was happening and that's why. And um, the hardship was, even though I had. Certain surgery, and I don't mind specifying what because it's in my manifesto. So I only had top surgery, which was wonderful. That was, you know, I was elated, finally. But as the years went by, even now, I still look in the mirror, and my body is not male. It never will be. And I get upset about it. I will not go out in public running or swimming without a shirt, even though I could. You know, my scars are covered. I have a nice tattoo, but the reason I won't do that is um, I don't like my hips. I'm very self-conscious about it. Um, Other people can't tell. They they take me for male and everything, but I know that it's not true. And there are little giveaways, and I'm very conscious of it. So I don't like to be looked at. I don't like to look at myself that way. And so that will never go away. I've said this in writing, gender dysphoria is not curable. There are certain things you can do to try to, you know, make it a little easier if you truly are someone who is dysphoric, but there's no cure for it. And um, I sometimes wonder, I don't know if it would have been possible in my case, but I wonder, would it have been easier to come to terms with who I was as a female and would I have been able to? live that way with some minor you know changes alterations and um the hormones last night I had to give myself my injection and I hate it um I get do it once a week now and sometimes I let a day go by because I put off doing it um I just I don't like sticking myself with a needle and there are, you know you can take gel but you have to put gel on yourself every single day and that can be messy and, um, the hormones, they do cause spikes, you know, in mood and, um, it's, it's just a nuisance. I'm like, if I didn't have this condition, I wouldn't have to take anything. I don't like taking the testosterone. I do like, however, that it gives me, you know, facial hair and, and that I can easily build muscle and that it deepens my voice. Um, And that it led to the the cessation of monthly cycles, but that's about it.
1: Well, sorry about that. It's interesting because, in a way, (laughs) in a way, that's another argument for early transition, right? That you wouldn't have those hips if you had gone right from puberty blockers. To cross-sex hormones at the onset of puberty
0: perhaps it um it depends though because there's still there's still that genetic component maybe my hips would have slimmed down a little but I, I even see it's I mean you are born with a certain bone structure and yes as you get older you know those bones grow but um It's still not advantageous to take hormones as a child, in my opinion, because it affects brain development. And if you want to have children, um, kids, adolescents, they are too young to decide whether they are going to want children down the road. Um, And freezing sperm or eggs is very expensive. And if you haven't yet hit puberty, well, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So it's... um, I do not advocate for giving children and young adolescents hormones. Definitely no.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um,
0: even yeah, I I am completely opposed to it. I
1: I want to get into that in a second, but I want to go back to something you said about you know if you are truly dysphoric, there is no cure for gender dysphoria, and there are so. I guess the question is how do you know who's truly dysphoric versus all the kids who are kind of self-diagnosing with gender dysphoria or the people for whom it it is temporary so if you talk to some detransitioners um they really felt they were in the wrong body they were convinced and they transitioned and um it didn't help or it helped for a while some of them had helped you know some of them they were happy for several years or even eight or nine years and then came to this place where you are which is oh i didn't actually change sex and i'm fighting my body and um even though they've altered their bodies um in ways they cannot change they do come to some kind of radical acceptance and don't feel besieged by gender dysphoria so you know I'm curious about how you define real gender dysphoria or kind of true trans versus all the other things going on today
0: right it's a uh, it's a process you, you can't you really use a ruler because everyone's different but I would say with truly truly um, gender dysphoric individuals um there there will be inklings and it's not influenced by anything outside and as a parent or someone who's watching it I advocate for you know sitting and waiting and asking tons of questions and not persuading one way or the other and um it's not something you can you know quickly push along and i don't think you should rush to diagnose it that is a great mistake um because right now you have a lot of these adolescents and they suddenly have this sudden gender dysphoria sudden onset and gender dysphoria doesn't suddenly just hit you it doesn't and um they're being influenced by you know what they read a certain rhetoric or peer influence and they, they, you know, they want to belong, and so they jump on the bandwagon. I'm not saying that's the case for everyone. I am by no means, I'm not making absolute statements, but by and large, you do not see gender dysphoria in the numbers that are coming about. It's just not normal. And um, so in the case of identifying who is truly gender dysphoric, it's a wait-and-see process, and I think it is uncomfortable As it can be for certain individuals who are going through it, what they need is to sit with themselves and really examine and write down questions. And if they have supportive parents or parents parents that are involved, just ask tons of questions. Not leading questions, I don't mean that, but get them to start critically thinking and just examine, you know, why. Why do they feel uncomfortable? What's so bad about it? Um, And it's like anything in life; it's a process. People evolve, and um, you can't decide this all in one day and just wake up and say, "Oh yeah, you know, I I decided um, last week, you know, I'm I want to be a boy or I'm a girl." It just hit me.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and I suppose. The other thing to ask them about, which is something you write about, <clears throat> is their belief system about what hormones and gender transition generally will do for them, that they are expecting it to lead to happiness and alleviate their suffering.
0: Yes, and that's, that is a misconception. And yes, you're right, I do write about that. And it's tunnel vision because I... I was just like that. I thought that was going to do it, that that would, you know, um, be the gateway and I'd be all right. I'd be content, happy. And you at that age, you don't know what you don't know. That's what I say. It takes living experience. And you're going to evolve through life. Hopefully you should. That's that's good. That's healthy. It's progress. You don't want to stagnate. And um teenagers often and I, I we all you know, we all go through that stage, you don't want to hear something and so you tune it out. You don't, you know, you you choose the hard path. You you have to find out for yourself and you can pay the price for that. And that's that's why I want to help others not have to pay such a high price, if at all possible.
1: The high price is Dealing with your body after transition?
0: Yes, after. Um, if you can do it beforehand, that is obviously the best way to do it. And I say obvious, but I think people get ag- ignore it or they, they get it so excited. Like I said, it's that tunnel vision. All they can see is, okay, I got to get on the hormones. I have to have the surgery. And you know then I'll start to be who I truly am. And I'm like... Do any of us know who we truly, truly are, gender aside? And there are so many aspects of who you are to explore at that age. And you don't want to limit yourself um, by going down, you know, a certain path. And then being like, oh, there's because some things can't be undone once you do, you know, surgery hormones. And um, you don't want to back yourself into that corner if you're not...
1: Yeah, you write about the importance of getting to know yourself before you make irreversible decisions. Will you talk a little bit about that, and and how would you, how should an adolescent get to know him or herself before transitioning? What does it mean?
0: Sure, it um it just means exploration in many realms. You know what what are your beliefs? Um, and that can be, you know, it can be religious, political, it. A lot of people don't know what they stand for at that age, and it's also it also involves healthy exploration in late adolescence in the early college years. You want to have a before and after you know um, reference because let's say you've never been sexual and then you decided to go on hormones and, or pursue surgery. Well, you may regret that you'll you might be like, well what?" What was it like before? Um, How would you know? How would your body have responded differently? And um, so those are vital aspects. And also in terms of dating, just different experiences. A lot of I and I work with adolescents, and the interesting part is some of them have very strong theories and ideas and these core beliefs, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, they haven't been tested. So it's one thing to have that idea in theory, but until it is truly confronted or tested, you don't know, you know, how how accurate it is.
1: Yeah, but I think it makes me think of how many of these children are being raised with the idea that you can't question anything about this or anything that's been linked to social justice in any way. And so they perceive a questioning of their beliefs as an act of violence rather than an opportunity to test and, and maybe even strengthen their beliefs. Right. It's, a yes, it it's not a threat. It's, it's not an opportunity. It's a threat. So they don't have the skills to respond to that with, by the way, I don't have these skills either, but <laughs> you know, interesting question, or let me think about that, or, huh, you know, I'm going to digest that and then come back with something. Instead it's how dare you ask. And I would I'm sure that that's what they say to their their parents. If the parents say, "Well, have you examined the source of your beliefs and do your beliefs hold up when pushed back against?" And right? They don't do that.
0: And and I even um I even say something about that in the manifesto and um I'll, I'll repeat it here if you don't mind. Yeah. It um, It's on page 19, and I say specifically to gender dysphoria, I say, if someone is trying to shame you into transitioning or detransitioning, um, remember this, that person is threatened by you. Angry, insecure people don't like their beliefs to be tested, questioned, or examined, and Adolescents are typically, you know, they can be very angsty, not I didn't say angry, but angsty and insecure because their identity hasn't, you know, been solidified. And to question them even gently, it um, causes a lot of anxiety because they're not secure. They, They can't defend their arguments necessarily in a logical way. Emotionally, they can. You know, they may storm off or they may say, well, I just feel this way. I know it but that's not supportive evidence you need something to back it up you need to be able to support it to yourself i'm mm-hmm. not saying you have to defend yourself to the world but you need to be able to have these arguments within yourself so that you can expand your awareness otherwise it's being blunted you need to be able to have someone you know stand there and kind of ask these difficult questions even if it's you Metaphorically, standing on the other side of the room, questioning yourself. And that's why I'm fascinated by this why someone would give up that intellectual freedom, you know, to think in so many different ways. And yet, it's funny because in talking to some of these adolescents, they are very um, progressive in their thinking, and yet they are so highly intolerant. And that's it's frightening. It's and I. I've written about this too. It's um, the whole new diversity and inclusion movement, and it's a movement, and it it gets my ire up because diversity has been hijacked. It no longer means what it used to. Mm -hmm. um, Diversity now equates to being intolerant of anyone who doesn't agree with your narrative, and that is so limiting. To me, diversity is being able to agree to disagree and have, you know, open discourse, and not villainize someone because they have a different perspective. Um, that's the only way we can expand and, you know, go to a higher plane.
1: Yeah, I, I think, as you, I'm sure you know, I think the way young people are perceiving viewpoint diversity is tr- trying to commit genocide of trans people. And I think you know, the vitriol um, and the hyperbolic nature of the language around it makes what you're talking about so difficult, which which would be simply, you know, going to therapy or having a discussion with your parents and having them say, um, why do you think you feel that way? <laughs> and, and them reacting with, you know, how dare you? How dare you ask me to defend my belief system? So there's a, there's a larger issue, I think, just of education and of critical thinking and um, this, this shift in how children are, are perceiving issues around identity, right, as, as being untouchable. And it really conflicts with what your Suggesting, which was not just getting to know yourself and questioning your beliefs, but also talking about um, resilience, which is yes. something that concerns me a lot as a person who never had much of it. But I'm trying to develop it now. And I, when um, I encounter an obstacle, instead of um, instead of just saying, "Gosh, I wish that obstacle wasn't there," thinking. Well, the point is, the point is not to have no obstacles. The point is to have the skills to navigate the obstacles. And I just tell myself recover quickly when I have a setback and I'm, I'm working on that, but I don't see that being I'm old and I'm working on that. I don't see children being taught that. And you mentioned a few times, and we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about this manifesto in a second, but you mention you know, if someone verbally attacks you, get a backbone. Don't, I love this line. Don't shrivel into paste. And grow a pair of cojones metaphorically. Will you talk a bit about about why you think that's important and, and how you came to see that as important?
0: Sure it's one it's just common sense and two I feel like we are becoming a society of just weaklings when you see throughout history the things the atrocities that humans have survived through and granted you know they didn't they didn't go to therapists i mean and we're talking major major traumatic experiences and they went on i'm not saying they all, it was always healthy you know there was alcoholism or drugs different mechanisms but a lot, lot of individuals they did go on and they thrived and they didn't receive any you know intervention or help and i find that fascinating and nowadays the quick fix fixes, and I write about this extensively. And um, it's you know, go to a therapist, um, get some medication to help you deal with that. And people are impatient; they want instant gratification, and it drives me crazy because it takes takes a lot of strength and endurance to just sit with an issue mm-hmm. and to let it, you know. You may be having a really hard time, but give it a day or two or a week and just examine it and don't rush to, you know, get that solution. Um, and also in terms of counseling, counselors are human. You know, they, they don't have the answers and they're not there to provide the answers. They're there to provide support. And... Um, I just don't uh, think that the way we've been going about this is practical. Um, Life is short and you just have to, it's not, it's, it's just, um, I don't know. I I could go on many tangents here, so I'll, I'll leave it there.
1: Well, let's talk about your manifesto. We've referenced it a couple of times. Tell us the name, tell us what, how you came to write it.
0: Sure, it's called Being Transgender is Not Normal, emphasis on not, a manifesto by a trans man. And I deliberately chose a controversial title because anything controversial usually attracts attention. And I wanted to reach a large audience um, because it's important for people to know what they're getting into and to hear from primary sources. And by primary, I mean individuals with lived experience, since I am a trans man. And I, I hate that word, even trans man. It sounds, it sounds so futuristic, like a transformer. It's, it's lame. I usually just say I'm a hybrid, you know, if I have to divulge it. Um, again, that's my anachronistic quality. But um, I decided to make this very short and concise, because I know a lot of people, they they're very busy and their attention spans are short. And many individuals, they live on their phones. Um, I encourage people to actually sit down with a hard copy, and you know they can read through it several times, share it around. And I wanted to address core issues um, that young individuals may be dealing with. And I wanted to be honest. Um, I usually don't write in this style, and um, some of the issues were a bit uncomfortable, but I thought that they needed to be addressed.
1: What were the, what were the uncomfortable
0: ones? Ones of a um of a sexual nature, um, because I wasn't doing it for for sensation or vulgarity. I do not like vulgarity. However, adolescents are curious. And um, I think it's important that they consider some of these things.
1: And so you decided to go, you became a life coach and you decided to go to a mental health counseling graduate program, right? Yes. So what happened when you gave this manifesto or a a section of the manifesto to your, did you give it to your class or your teacher?
0: So... A few years ago, and this was this was actually unrelated to my graduate program
1: okay.
0: um I attended a um counseling group at a local college here. This is not the college I attended for graduate school and um it was the first transgender only group that I'd ever been to in my life, and all the attendees were college age, so we're talking. 18 to 21 years old and the facilitator was female and a counselor and um, it was awkward for me to be there I felt exposed but I wanted to see I wanted some camaraderie and so I shared with them at the end a list of questions it was called confronting the self and I gave it to the facilitator as well and I said you know um, I'd like to speak with you about being you know a resource for these individuals and one of the individuals in the group i thought it was interesting just a side note this was a male to female and uh she was she was passing very well um 18 years old and when she, we went around the room talking about ourselves what she said was she just wanted to grow old with her cats now i love cats but here she here she was 18 and i'm thinking you just want to grow old with your cats. That's it, and it just—it struck me as so sad and uh, so limited. And here, this person had transitioned already, and I could tell. I mean, she wasn't happy. Um, I'm not saying who knows, you know, if she was happy about the procedures or whatnot, but it just—I was like this, almost like the movie. Is this as good as it gets? Um, I was just stymied by it, and so I gave this. Um, … questionnaire, list of questions to everyone. No one ever reached out to me, and the facilitator never did. Um, I had to follow up with her. So two months later, she finally kind of just flippantly responded and said that she didn't agree with my position, and um, she said we could talk about it, but that never manifested. We never did. And um, that was that, and it was very revealing. Um, here I was, someone who had lived experience 15 plus years, and she didn't even care to, you know, explore that with me or to hear about it or how I might be able to, you know, support, be a resource to these students. And I was also employed at the college at the time. So I was rather um, dismayed by that experience. And it was enlightening about the current, you know, current uh ideation that's going on
1: what did you learn
0: i learned that um they don't want to hear the truth or they don't want to be questioned they just you know this they just wanted to affirm and you know um and that's that doesn't cut it affirming doesn't help individuals who are suffering and i could see that in the group you know they were just talking about issues, but there were no solutions. you need solutions. you need to explore hard issues. And um, the facilitator, as I said, she um, is was, you know is biologically female. So she couldn't relate. and even one of the students in there on a thread um, mentioned that that they felt um, kind of awkward sharing information very private with a facilitator who couldn't relate.
1: Did that make you wanna go into counseling as opposed to deterring you from it?
0: Um, actually, no per se. My reasons for going into counseling are very long and um, have other influences. I felt called to speak up though because I, I had experience in that realm it's not something I wanted to pursue. I never saw myself as being, you know, um, someone who was going to talk openly about these matters, about gender dysphoria. However, I felt like it happened for a reason. I was called to do it, like it or not. Um, it's it's my responsibility. It's my obligation to younger individuals so that they don't hopefully have to suffer um, as much.
1: What's and, the... Um, What's the experience been like studying counseling in this environment? And and have you had contrary views that you've expressed?
0: Fortunately, now I've I've heard from some individuals in my local town who are attending the college where this happened. Um, She gave me some interesting insight um, about how people do oppose um, questioning. Now where I attended, graduate school. Um, no, I did not run into this, thankfully. And um, I've been sharing my views and I've they've been positively uh, received. And they've asked me questions about situations that have come up where they're working and they're curious how to deal with it. And um, because they're running into, you know, um, environments where You just need to affirm, or you, you know, they don't want any pushback. And um, as counselors and social workers, these peers, they're concerned, so they've been asking me questions on how do you think we should approach this, or you know, deal with it.
1: What do you tell them?
0: Um, I tell them that to try and establish common ground, and um, you know, not let it get them too upset or angry. Um, You don't want to attack because I feel like – and I don't want it to be about sides. I, I don't like setting that up, but the side who is vehemently against questioning, they can they can be – and again, I'm not making absolute statements, but a lot of them can be very self-righteous and intolerant, and they attack. They're very angry, and it's so hypocritical because here you're – you know, proclaiming that, oh, you're so progressive and enlightened you know, and diversified, yet you get so angry, and you don't want to hear anything else. Um, so if you're on the other side of that, you don't want to become like that. So I, I, um, I recommend just holding your ground, being logical, providing evidence, and just um, every situation is different. And, and that's that's the hard thing to remember. You can't, you don't want to look at it under an umbrella, um, you know, lens, because every small situation is different within this whole issue.
1: Well, we had talked also about the censorship issue, and it's great it's great that you were in an environment where you could speak openly. But then we were talking about you know, your manifesto and and how to identify yourself and that there being some things that are still not acceptable to say if you want to be employable. And right. um, can you talk about how you've experienced censorship and self-censorship and what kind of effect that's had on you?
0: Sure. Um, thankfully, knock on wood, thus far i haven't been censored however i've um, been cautious about self-censoring and using pseudonyms which is ridiculous um to have to do because we are talking about common sense here and um it's just you shouldn't have to be guarded about an open conversation there's nothing wrong with questioning individuals it's not about conversion therapy i mean That's just ridiculous, and um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but so I've just, I haven't had to experience censorship too much, but I've seen how it is affecting others, and it just gets my ire up because I'm like, that is dangerous. If you're trying to censor something that much, then there's something wrong, seriously wrong, um, if you don't want to hear the other side. And you just want to bury it and silence them. Um, I could make parallels to that, but um, I won't at this moment. It's just frightening. It really is, and it's cause for alarm. And anyone who doesn't see it or isn't alarmed by it, um, that is another reason to be afraid.
1: Well yeah we were talking about the kinds of things that we censor ourselves about like talking honestly about the science or talking honestly about detransition and you had said yeah. you know what we're censoring is the truth yes
0: and um i and it, it's fascinating i mean people can have many theories you know they you ask you know why would they want to censor the theory it's it's social reformation and it's not just in terms of gender there are other things that are going on and it's major all these big issues are coming up and i'm like isn't that interesting all of a sudden all these huge you know things and you have to step back from all of it you can't see my my philosophy on it is you don't want to be in the pit in the battlefield you know throwing slinging mud at each other and arguing that's just wasted energy it's not constructive I like to step back from it, kind of take an aerial view and see what is going on in each of these pockets and see how they're all interconnected. And um, a lot of people, they immediately just want to jump in. And that's where you have to have self control and not be re- reactionary. And um, it's very easy to get caught up, you know, in the emotions and that energy. And you want to be a part of something, you know, a crusader and i am not a crusader no if i'm a crusader of anything it would be of truth but of course everyone has their own definition of truth and that's where it can be a little difficult because i believe and here's my philosophy we're on this earth to you know come together and be peacemakers and i don't mean that in some hippyish way but it's truly why you know what we should be working on and unfortunately when we have this major issue of you know affirming versus not it's dismantling common ground and um that's not constructive it's actually a, it's a hindrance
1: when you went to your mom at 1415 you wrote a letter and then you went to therapy what do you wish had happened
0: um i wish and i'm again i don't i don't blame if i hold anyone accountable to myself um i wish my mother had stepped back and asked me some very hard questions granted i'll be honest i probably wouldn't have answered them or wanted to um but i wish she had approached me more critically um i wish i'd had some um guidance Some mentors and even in the roles of counselors, I wish they had sat with me and just said, hey, it's obvious you don't want to deal with this. So, you know what, we're not going to sign off on these letters. I know you probably will hate us for this, but I want you to understand why. We're not saying never, but you need to understand and confront this before you do it. No one ever did that. Like I said, I didn't even talk in the sessions. I think I wrote some letters to them answering their questions but i wasn't dealing with it at all and in all honesty they probably didn't know how to approach it it was still very new i i was an anomaly and um they probably just wanted to you know quickly push me along and i know at some point i know i said that i was suicidal of course that that never went away um and I just I want it out of my skin but that's the thing you can have surgery you can take hormones you're not going to get out of your body um so that that's that's the thing that's why you have to come to terms with being comfortable in your body before you transition I'm not saying you can't transition but you have to be at ease and at peace prior to doing so
1: is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to add
0: um i just feel like i've spoken far too much
1: not at all not at all
0: i I feel like it because i get um i it's just it's unfortunate that we visit that we are meeting this way that we have to be talking about this issue because i rather just talk about writing with you but um yeah there, there are a couple of things i'd like to briefly touch upon because i don't want to take up too much you know more time um but um, here's one of them, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I just, I hate the term cisgender. It is the stupidest term.
1: <laughs>
0: and so I will never use the word cisgender. I use the word biological male or biological female. Mm-hmm. Cisgender just throws a lot of people off. They're like, what? I They, they have to go and look it up. Um, and I recently told someone this. So if... Just before I was born, or while I was, you know, percolating. Um, if I had a choice, what I could have been. This is how I break it down. My first choice would have been biological heterosexual male. Second choice would have been homosexual male. Hmm. Third would have been biological heterosexual female. Fourth would have been homosexual female, and fifth, the very last, you know what I'm going to say, would have been transgender
1: Hmm.
0: it um i do not like being trans it it uh it derailed my life it did and sometimes it still makes me angry but i try to reframe it there are far worse things you know that could have happened um but it's hard here's the thing i can understand the the viewpoint of mainstream society i took a normal body and i hijacked it and I had surgery, and now I'm, as I say in my manifesto, and this is true, I'm a half-breed. And there's nothing wrong with saying half-breed. It's, it's all in the tone of how you say it. And again, like you were saying, people get so angry, and it's, it's hyperbolic, and I love that word, because statements can be very benign, but individuals like to take them, and they cause these extreme exaggerations like it's, you know it's a terrible thing. And when it's not, it's just making a statement. And um, oh, another another issue um, that I kind of, a bone of contention, this whole movement, especially in higher ed, um, in places of employment with, with pronouns under your signature line. Um, I, I laugh and laugh at this. I, I will not partake in that. It is ridiculous. If you are someone who clearly has a male or female name, there is no need to specify what your pronouns are. Now, if you have a unisex name or if you're someone who is transitioning, then fine. You want to specify your pronouns in your signature line? Go for it. Um, I just – what what annoys me and agitates me is that the majority um, should cater to this select, this select minority. I mean… The, trans, the truly transgender population, it's, it's so minute, and I'm one of them, and I have never expected mainstream society to cater to me. I mean it – and I write about this in the manifesto. Society doesn't owe me anything, and I do not demand tolerance, um, and that – it's just I don't like when individuals go around demanding their rights. Yes, everyone has the right to be treated with respect. I don't deny that. But um I will like to briefly touch upon this and again if you want to cut me off at any point, feel free.
1: No, keep going. I mean the the point I mean, the point is to platform heterodox trans people. I mean that's part of what I you know that's part of what I want to do here is say, look, trans people don't all think one way about these issues.
0: Exactly. And that's that's very important because you have a lot of activists out there, and they're not even trans, and yet they're speaking on behalf of trans people, and I'm like, you don't know, I, it's, so it, it's frustrating, but um, this, I just want, lightly wanted to touch upon it because it it caused ire in me, it just, it annoyed me, and I don't mean this person any ill will, nothing like that, um, but you mentioned it, in, I think, in an article, and it was about um, a young man, trans man, Gavin Grimm, um, in Virginia, who um, had, you know, a ruling. It took six years um, for the Supreme Court to rule on it to allow him to use, you know, the opposite gender bathroom in high school, even though he was no longer in high school because it takes taking so long. And here is my statement on that: I do not support or believe in having trans children or high school. Um, individuals using opposite bathrooms, and this is why. If you haven't transitioned yet, and you don't look like the op- like the gender you want to, um, then you shouldn't be venturing into the opposite bathroom. You shouldn't expect the entire school to cater to you, if anything, if it's an issue, and I know this because I lived it, and I, if I sound adamant about this, it's because it just – it, it it upsets me because I know what I went through. So if it is an issue, one, you can go to the school nurse and just say, hey, can I use, you know, like the faculty restroom? Please accommodate me because I don't want to disrupt the entire school and make them all uncomfortable. Or two, if you are passing and no one can tell, then just, you know, quietly slip in and don't attract attention to yourself. I never wanted to, you know go on a crusade to have a, um, a rule overturned on my behalf mm-hmm. um, my entire high school career I never went to the restroom uh. I never used I never used it now I had options I like I said I, I could have gone to the nurse's station or I could have slipped into the restroom or oftentimes most public places even schools they have a family restroom so you know avail yourself of that. Um, mm-hmm. Now having oh sorry
1: well I was just going to say the the shift to the shift the shift comes out of I think this larger zeitgeist shift in the snowplow parenting world which is that the worst thing is for your child to experience being othered or emotional discomfort and therefore making a child who is different seek out, you know, the faculty bathroom or the school nurse bathroom was against the dogma is is too negative a word, but, you know, the zeitgeist of belonging that is now embedded in our schools. And so we want children to feel they belong. And so just because they're differently gendered in some way, they shouldn't have to be forced to seek out unique accommodations for the bathroom. And and I understand that. I think the problem is there's such a kind of obsession with um, the experience of minorities or, or people perceived as marginalized that their comfort is prioritized over everyone else's comfort. So it doesn't matter if, um, You know, there's a biological male in a girl's bathroom or changing room. It doesn't matter if those girls feel uncomfortable um, because what's important is that this other person doesn't feel like another, doesn't feel like an other person. So that's where I think it. I think it comes out of good intentions, but I also think we may have lost the plot with our fury around um, trying to prevent uncomfortable situations, which goes back to what you had written earlier about resilience, right? That rather than, you know, I'll say, I don't talk about my kid that much, but when she was in kindergarten and it was difficult for some of the children to understand that she was a girl, the parent coordinator said like, look, the teacher will has, has told everybody that there are lots of different ways that girls and boys can look. And and actually that really was all almost all we needed. There was only one student who really couldn't get it. Um, okay. And, and then, then they said, you know, it's up to you. Your child is different. And so how are you gonna prepare your child to navigate the world? What tools will you give her? What should she say to people? Because people are gonna tell her she's in the wrong bathroom, you know? And people are going to not believe her. And what tools do you give her? And, and the biggest tool was not caring, right? Don't care if anyone misgenders you. Um, if you're in the wrong bathroom, you know, you have a legal right to be in that bathroom. I, I mean, actually, now you have the legal right, I think because of Gavin Grimm and other lawsuits to be in, in a lawsuit that accords with your gender identity, but not everyone has a gender identity. So, She has the right to be in the bathroom according to her sex. So I just think it's, I think it's all, I think it's all related to that, but I have some, I have some sympathy for the people who created these policies and I don't know if you experienced this because I don't know if you really spent time as a, as a masculine woman or a butch woman, but it is really, really hard in the bathrooms I mean, for our family, we have had many, many situations in the bathroom with people immediately irate, assuming that my child's in the wrong bathroom. It's really tough to navigate. And again, I'm not asking the world to change all of its bathrooms. I I am, um, I mean, I don't want there to ever be violence, but... You know, we've, we have had to devise strategies for navigating the kind of gendered infrastructure of our country. But again, that's about resilience, not accommodation.
0: Exactly. Yes. And, I, and like I was saying, in terms of your, your child, if someone looks, you know, and is passing as the other gender, and, you know, there's, then I am fine with them using the the opposite restroom but if you're someone who clearly doesn't you know you're not passing but you just identify then it wouldn't it be appropriate to be going into that opposite bathroom because one you're inviting you know potential harm and it makes others uncomfortable and um, that's that that's my premise on it and again it's yeah like I said and I don't want to go on and on about it it's the the majority should not have to cater to that select, select minority. And it's it's almost these these are common sense issues. Like in the case of schools, if you have one student who is truly, you know, again that truly statement, gender dysphoric, why would you change your entire policy for that one student, but based on you you know, like you were saying, well, because you want them to feel like they belong. However, life is you know, it's always going to be about being different. Everyone is different, and it's ridiculous to think that you can, um, you know, mitigate that sense of discomfort by changing that policy. When number one, that person is going to leave high school eventually; they're just passing through, and number two, they're going to come up to come um encounter far more difficult situations being transgender than, you know, a uh, bathroom at high school. Mm. And um, it, so it just, like I said earlier, every situation is different. It's a case by case. So if you are someone who truly passes, then yeah, by all means, use the bathroom that you feel like using. But if you clearly, you know, can be identified as someone who's, eh, you know, trying to transition, then no. Don't do it to yourself or others.
1: Um, well, just are... to, put, to push back on that, since we were talking about pushing back, I mean, that's the, again, that's the argument for early transition, especially for young boys, right? Not that they, if they don't do it young, that they won't pass.
0: Right. But again, then then the counter argument to that is, well, young boys, won. They're too young. I mean, what if they want children? What about sexlo- sexual exploration when they're adolescents, you know, in college age? You don't want to cause impotence, you know, it's, and um, you want them to develop normally um, in terms of, you know, their brain and obviously their bodies. Um, when they're really young, you know, I advocate for let them use, you know, an alternate bathroom in in the faculty area or the nurse's station it's um it again it's a case by case situation there but it shouldn't be taken to the state or the you know gov- government level it's, the school should just handle it quietly and just be done with it it's when you give so much attention to something that's when you know it causes all these issues and everyone starts to come out you know the woodwork with their different viewpoints and there's no need for but there are far more important issues on this earth than gender, and uh, that's, yeah.
1: <laughs> and yet here we are talking about it. But this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it, and I think that um, your manifesto and and the questions you have for especially for young people are really important. So we'll we'll make sure that people see that.
0: Yes, no, no I appreciate that.
1: Okay, thank you so much.
0: Sure, thank you.